understand how business is done in that country and in China it is very much about relationship building. So knowing that before you go in can, I think, can mitigate a lot of problems in the way that you communicate and the way that you problem solve any issues that you have in manufacturing down the track because you will have problems. There will be errors, there will be mistakes, there will be delays. How you deal with them will be the difference in having a product that turns up eventually the way you want it and one that doesn't. That is Kelly Erickson for this episode of From Birth to Business. I am your host, Britt, and you are about to listen to 50 minutes of practical on the tools advice from a founder that has learned so much through trial and error over the years. Kelly is extremely generous with the knowledge and the experience that she shares in this episode. And it was actually really difficult to write a summary for this conversation because as you'll soon find out, Kelly dives into such detail across all aspects of business and marketing. And I feel like there will be many, many different aha light bulb moments for anyone currently in market with a product or working on launching something of their own. So that's enough for me. Let's get into it and I hope you enjoy. Kelly, what brand are you the founder of and who are you a mother to? I'm the founder of Little Human Linens and we make waterproof fitted sheets for babies, toddlers and kids transitioning into big beds. And I am the mum to four children, uh, Edie, who is my oldest, Thomas, Hamish and Oliver, who is the youngest, or my baby. Not so baby anymore, he's two, so yeah. And is that it now? Are we, are we going for that? That is it. That is most definitely it. Four is, four is perfect. <laughs> Uh, so what were you doing for work before you launched Little Human Linens? So I'm an ED nurse by trade. Uh, I went to uni, did a double degree in paramedic studies and nursing and ended up in the world of emergency nursing for probably about 10 years at that point. So um, I loved the fast-paced world of ED, busy, constantly thinking on your feet. Um, and yeah, just it's it's so different to what I do now so like yeah it's like night and day so I love it though and so can you take us back to what took you from that world into this world and I guess when uh you came up with the idea for your business uh how did I how did I become uh the founder of a business from an ED nurse wow by accident like literally completely by accident there was no there was no dream to start an e-commerce brand like not at all but in saying that, if I look back at my life, I've always probably been a little bit entrepreneurial by nature. You know, I paid my way through uni by having little side hustles to try and, you know, get some extra cash on the side to pay for my lifestyle, which, you know, if you've ever been to uni, you know, it's a very, very poor one. So I, I was very, very pregnant with Edie. Um, we just moved, actually, we just moved towns, which again, I don't advise at like 36 weeks pregnant, we'd kind of settled everything in the house. I was in like nesting mode, which I realized for me is creative mode. It's not house cleaning and organizing. I kind of get this sort of surge of creativity. And I'd read this hack uh, online in a blog, back when blogs were cool, about doubling up your sheets with a mattress protector in between. So waterproof mattress protector, fitted sheet, waterproof mattress protector, fitted sheet. And I was like, that's a great idea. I'm an emergency nurse. I totally get soiled bed linen. That works. When I physically went to do it, I couldn't fit all of the sheets. And I was kind of doing it thinking, this is a lot of like extra product. Surely there's like an all-in-one version. So I jumped online to buy something, even if I had to buy it from overseas and I physically couldn't find it anywhere. So I thought, I can make one. So off I went to Spotlight and got my pretty fabric. I couldn't find the waterproof membrane that I wanted. So I found that online, made a sheet. And then I thought, I'm going to be really bored on maternity leave because I'm going to have nothing to do because apparently there's nothing to do on maternity leave. At least that's your idea before you have a baby. You think, what am I going to do when the baby's sleeping? When I... um, and so I made a few extras and I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll sell them on Etsy or something with no intention of like making noodles of cash or anything like that. Um, so I did that and I made 
quite a few of them. I sold them all over the world and I just had this ridiculous demand to the point that I couldn't actually keep up. But I was making no money at all because I was buying all of my materials at like retail price. And But I realized really quickly, oh my God, there's totally a demand for this product. So I kind of went, maybe I could turn it into a business. I don't know. I was halfway through maternity leave by this point. We decided to pick up our life and move to Cairns for my husband's work. And I was pregnant again. And then somewhere in between baby two and three, I sort of, I stopped making sheets because I realized it wasn't sustainable to hand sew them. And I was never going to make any money doing it that way. And I now had children to look after. So life was really busy. And I started figuring out how you actually go about getting a product made, particularly when it was custom, because my product was completely custom. I couldn't just go and buy it off the shelf somewhere. And then how you sell it. And that probably took me about two years or 18 months to two years to kind of really make that leap to go, okay, I'm actually going to do this. Wow. (laughs) First question. Had you sewed much before? And yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were confident. Yeah. I was creative. Like my teenage years, I did sewing in high school. Um, I mean, I'm not a fashion designer. I, I could, I've always been creative by nature, figuring out problem solving and, oh, there's a problem instead of just kind of doing X, Y, Z, I'll figure out a whole new way to do it because it's more efficient. But even that'll take me 20 times longer to do, but I love that kind of a challenge. I guess that's just how my brain operates. And then for the the two the two or so years where you said it kind of it took you to figure out, I guess, the transition from yeah. Etsy to getting it manufactured somewhere yeah. else, um, how did you go about that? Like, because obviously you were so used to making the product yourself. Where did you even start to find someone else that I guess you trusted? Yeah, yeah. Product? It's it was hard. I mean, again, we're talking. Um, I wrote down dates here before. We're talking like 2016, 2017, when I actually was going through this like um, initial kind of first sampling process with factories. And before I even got to that point, I, like I didn't even know where to look. So I, I just Googled, I chatted to like a consultant in Australia. I sort of started going down that line, but the samples that I was getting back wasn't right. And then I reached out to another business owner that used a material, like a similar waterproof material to me and just asked her, where did you like, how did you source your, your products? And she just told me Alibaba, just literally come on to Alibaba and you start talking to people and you just have to find someone that you can communicate with because you can get anyone to make your product to some degree, but finding the right person to work with, to communicate with is absolutely vital to that relationship being successful. And Um, I mean, the only place you can really manufacture my product is China. So, um, I knew that straight away because of the material that I use. There's only two places in the world it's made, the US and China and China is so close. So it makes sense to deal with them directly. Um, and so it just was a matter of reaching out to a whole bunch of Cochic manufacturers on Alibaba and kind of explaining what I wanted and going from there. Did you find that really overwhelming? Because I've been on Alibaba many a times and I give up because yeah. it's like, where do you even begin? Yeah. How do you narrow it down? Um, yeah. Um, yes. It's just a matter of looking for someone that's got a longstanding reputation. Um, I mean, reviews are helpful, but I'm not sure that they're necessarily vital. Looking for a manufacturing company, not a trading company. Um, the difference between those two is a trading company is basically reselling another factory's product where a manufacturing company is making it for you. Um, and then obviously, (laughs) that's a great tip. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, just kind of looking at the quality and the price point of the things that they were already selling and figuring out if that kind of aligned with the product that I wanted to make. Um, but it was literally just trial and error. Just, you know, shortlisting 10, reaching out to them. And then the ones that I could actually talk to back and forth that were helpful and wanted to work with me, I kind of narrowed it down to about two or three. And I think I ended up with samples from two. And the person that had the better sample was the one I ended up going with and who I still work with to this day. That was going to be my next question. So you have stayed with that same manufacturer since 2016, 2017? Yeah. 
absolutely. When you find a good one, you stick with them. They become like family. Um, and that's, that's understanding how Chinese business is done, um, is I would say is probably one of the most important things before you reach out to any international, um, manufacturer, understand how business is done in that country. And in China, it is very much about relationship building. So knowing that before you go in can, I think can mitigate a lot of problems in the way that you communicate and the way that you problem solve any issues that you have in manufacturing down the track. Cause you will have problems. There will be errors. There will be mistakes. There will be delays. How you deal with them will be the difference in having a product that turns up eventually the way you want it and one that doesn't. So we've gone from being pregnant, identifying a gap in the market, coming up with a product, selling ourselves, selling on Etsy to then realizing this is, I'm really busy. I'm not making any money. I need to step this up and figure out how to manufacture this somewhere overseas. So you found the right um, factory. Then what do you do? You put in your first order. And um, if I'm honest, that was the most frightening thing that I've ever done. Um, it was a lot of money at the time. It was $10,000 for my first order. And because my product was completely custom, I had high MOQs, which is your minimum order quantity to be able to get that product produced. What I know now is that you can actually bargain that down. Um, you can, you will pay a much higher price per unit to do that. But if it means you can reduce having like half of your cash flow tied up, you know, I ordered a thousand sheets, which was a lot for a first uh, for a first run in two colors. So one size, two colors, a thousand units in total. And at that point I hadn't sold a sheet for 12 to 18 months. The market had changed. So if I went back and did it again, I would have definitely only ordered maybe 200 of each color. I would have paid a much higher price per unit, which yes, would have impacted my profit margins, but I would have had so much less cash tied up in stock. And I could have used that money for marketing or for other things instead. Um, and I guess really actually tested my manufactured product to market and then just gone back and ordered. And then as you, as you go through that reordering process and your, your orders increase, your price comes down and you get to negotiate those prices down. But I didn't know any of these things before I started. So it was just, you know, figuring it out and kind of diving in head first a little bit. When you put in that first order of 1000 units, did you say that you had stopped selling on Etsy for almost a year? Yeah. In that time, were you also, um, I guess, building a community on social media? Were you active in any other digital space so that when you then launched Little Human Linens V2, yeah. were people there ready to yeah, no, I wasn't. So don't do what I did. <laughs> Again, we're talking 20, 2017 at this point. When I'm selling on Etsy, I literally have my Etsy store. Um, I had an Instagram profile and you could boot, you can boost posts now still, but you could boost a post um, for like $10 and you get sales out of that. It, social media and Instagram back then was completely different to what it is now. Fast forward a year or two, you know, 2017, when I'm in the middle of sampling and when I probably should have been building a community. Again, I don't have a marketing background. I'm an ED nurse. I just thought you build it and they will come. You build the product, you make a great product, you fill a gap in the market and people will tell other people and they will come. Um, so no, I, I didn't. And again, if I was starting again now, 100% you should be doing that. You should be taking people through. I should be building that community, building hype. I think I was, I had a lot of imposter syndrome, huge amount of imposter syndrome. I didn't know anyone that had started a business. I didn't know anyone in product-based businesses and I had no one to lean on. I had no business network. I was just kind of operating in a complete silo. And I thought that if I hyped too much, I think I was so afraid of letting people down and failing that I thought if I hyped too much and then I couldn't deliver in time, like people are having babies. They want their sheets by a particular time frame. Yeah, I, I, I just, I was so afraid of failing that I didn't. Um, and I got away with it to some degree. I don't think that you could get away with that now. I think you've got to figure out how to build that community and some investment into who you are and what your business is before you launch. Definitely now. 
Mm. Everything you were just saying, like, I feel like there'd be so many mothers listening to to that being like, oh my God, I can relate. Like imposter syndrome, having never done marketing before, having, ne- mm. having never sold a product before. And you're right, you've changed worlds. Like you've gone from being an ED nurse to now you're in the e-com game. Yeah. Yeah. So you're sitting at home and you have 1,000 units ready to sell. Yeah. Uh, have you built a website? Did you do this yourself? Because you've moved off Etsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So- we can, we can backtrack to our first giant manufacturing stuff up. So um, it was, uh, what date was it? The, it was May 2019 and my first lot of sheets was supposed to arrive and I was getting ready to start selling. I got them to send pre-production, like post-production samples. So before they sent the entire shipment, they sent me um, a couple via air freight so that I could inspect and make sure that everything was perfect. When they arrived they were not the same as my sample. They'd made them bigger. Um, and the reason that this had all occurred was because the person that I was dealing with at the factory went off on maternity leave and handed over to someone else halfway through manufacturing. And so my sheets were bigger. We'd already accounted for shrinkage and they reversed the waterproof membrane in my sheet, which impacted absorption. And at first I was like, this is okay. This is not a big deal. Um, I was just about to have baby number three. So I was like massively pregnant. So in a great state of mind to be dealing with <laughs> like, like literally everything that I had feared had come true. And I was petrified that I'd literally just wasted $10,000 because I couldn't sell these sheets. There's no way that I could sell these sheets and take them to market because I wasn't happy with the quality of the product. And so I sat on it for a day and I cried a lot. And I talked to my husband, I like, what are we going to do? And I was like, okay, they're fixable, like they're not, they haven't been cut too small. So technically they are fixable. So I reached out to like my new liaison at the factory and I was very gentle in my wording. And I said, there is a mistake. Um, and you have a tech pack when you, it's called a tech pack. It's like a blueprint for your product. And this is your contract. So if you're going to manufacture a product that's completely new, you have to have a tech pack because this is what you fall back on and say, no, 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 these are our instructions. And if they've deviated from that, then you can say, but but no, this is what we actually agreed on, which is really important when you're dealing with different languages. Um, Even though most people at factory will speak English, it's just so vital that you have these things written down in solid plans. So I I reached out to Martin and said, you know, we've got a problem. These are not the way that our samples were made, they're not the way our tech pack was made. What are we going to do to fix it? How can we fix this together? Because otherwise the quality is amazing. I'm really, really excited, but we can't, we can't take these to market. So we went back and forth, lots of photos and videos, and the agreement was uh, that they would unpick every single sheet. They recut every sheet. They re-sewed every sheet. It took two and a half months to do that, which is longer than the actual initial manufacturing, but it meant we weren't wasting any product at all, which I was really um, adamant about. I was like, we can't just throw these in the bin. That's just so incredibly wasteful. Even if it was going to be at their cost and they were going to pay for it, I was like, I just, I can't, I can't stomach the idea of just disposing of these. That's not okay. So we fixed them all. They sent the new ones. They were absolutely perfect. They gave me a discount on my first order because of that. Um, and we launched in, I think, July 2019 and it was, it was the, like I said earlier, it was the sorting out of that problem that really solidified that I was actually working with the right factory because it couldn't get any worse and we fixed it. So, yeah. So they unpicked everything, redid 1000 sheets. They didn't charge you for that. And then they also gave you a discount on that first order. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. are worth Because it was definitely on them. They they acknowledged that it was their fault. They made the mistake. There was a miscommunication between the person that went off on maternity leave and the person that took over and they were thought they were doing the right thing. Like it was all with the best of intentions, but I was like, you just have to talk to me because <laughs> it's a whole new product. Um, and now we just have, it's, I'm still dealing with that same person and he picks up my mistakes sometimes when I accidentally put something through and it's slightly wrong. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. They are like family to us now, even though I've never met them ever. Wow. What a major first hurdle to, um, get over. Yeah. So all of the sheets are now fixed. You're happy with the 1000. 
Do you have a website? What do yes, you do? Yes, I have a website. So Shopify, I, literally anyone can build a website on Shopify. It's not, you don't have to be particularly tech savvy. You have to have a bit of a keen eye. Um, but it's designed to be pretty plug and play. And it's even easier to build a, a website on Shopify now than it was probably back then. They've certainly improved the platform. Um, I have no idea how I knew to use Shopify. I think I just, in that whole process, was researching and figuring it out. But it it almost felt like a bit of an afterthought. Oh, yeah, I better get the website ready. And, you know, spent two or three days putting something together that, if I look back now, is borderline embarrassing. But, you know, that's what you do in the beginning. You just figure it yeah, out. and you're just so obsessed with your product and that design process and the manufacturing process that then you would have been like, oh, hang on. I know how to sell this. Yeah. yeah. You think you think that the product development is 90% of the work and actually it's 1% of the work. It is such a small part of the journey. Yeah. Wow. And then how did you, you've got the website, how did you get the word out? So I had obviously people that had bought my sheets via Etsy. I had a small following on Instagram. I was kind of gearing up in the weeks leading up to it with some sneak peeks and some boosted posts on Instagram. I launched in July. I think I sold one or two sheets on that first day to previous customers. And then it was crickets. Nothing. Uh, I would maybe sell one sheet here and there. And that was it. Yeah, it was hard. Like it was when the realization set in. I also had a new baby at this point. And I just, what have I done? Like, how am I gonna? Why? Why aren't people just buying? Why aren't they just? They they two years ago they just bought them. They found me. But the world had changed. You know, marketing was more competitive. Social media had changed. I think when I started the Instagram uh, feed was chronological back then, and there wasn't like an algorithm behind it. I think by the time I launched the website, you were starting to get that kind of Instagram algorithm of like preferred posts. You weren't seeing everything. You weren't seeing things in chronological order anymore. So that certainly had an impact. Um, yeah. And I, I spent probably six months just floundering going, what am I going to do? How am I going to figure this out? And I think many algorithm changes over the years has really stuffed small businesses. So you're yeah. not alone in that at all. Did you then think, okay, the online space maybe isn't taking off right now. It's way more competitive. Did you do like in-person markets? Did you consider wholesale or were you pretty gung-ho and I'm just going to make this work? And Yeah, I, so I, I mean, at this point I had three children. They're all 20 months apart and my youngest was six months old. He was, he was a tough kid. He had reflux. So, I mean, from a product testing point of view, he was like amazing. Um, and so I was definitely giving the sheets a workout and I, <laughs> if, if you want to call it from a business development point of view, I was really making sure the product was working. Um, mentally and emotionally, I was completely wiped. And so the business was getting barely any attention. Um, it was, if I sold the sheet, great. If I didn't, whatever, I just needed to survive. Um, I had a stockist who is still a stockist today reach out uh, via Instagram and ask to stock my product, which I had like, yeah, great. How do I do that? Um, so I had to look into like wholesale pricing. And so everything I just literally learned on the fly, it didn't occur to me. Um, don't, don't do what I did, honestly. <laughs> uh, I, I had no, I didn't really actually have a good strategy in place. Um, and so I had to when I got serious sort of the year after in 2020, um, Hamish was what, seven, eight months old. I was sort of starting to get myself back together at that point. Um, then I was really like, okay, I have to figure this out or I've got to give up one of the two. Um, and so then I started looking into, do I wholesale? Do I evolve my website more? Do I need to start doing paid advertising? Um, where to from here? So the first part of 2020 was all about trying to figure out how to market the product. And did you reach out to a consultant or an agency to support you through that? Or again, were you finding everything you needed to yeah, know? Yeah. Again, the old imposter syndrome definitely snuck in. Uh, no one wants to deal with a startup back then. Um there are lots of agencies that will take advantage of startups now and take your cash and they will talk about being able to build up your business and there's no 
minimum ad spend required. Um, they'll, they'll send you broke. So watch out for those people. But back then agencies really only wanted to deal with people who already had volume sales. Um, so I had spoken to a couple of agencies. There was one in particular, uh, that I ended up working with who gave me lots of great advice initially. Um, and I ended up jumping on with them and doing Facebook ads from about April, May, 2020. In the background of all of this, COVID had hit, uh, which was an incredibly opportunistic time for e-commerce if you played your cards right. So in the first lockdown of 2020, a lot of the big brands were pulling out in paid advertising. And so uh, because all their storefronts were closing down. So if you were a brand that was investing in paid advertising in that first COVID lockdown, your advertising costs were so tiny. The return on investment was enormous if you knew what you were doing, uh, which I didn't. And if you played your cards right, you could scale really quickly. So I ended up jumping on board with this agency uh, who cost a fortune, um, made a lot of money initially, and then it died. <laughs> um, there was no strategy really in place. They were just taking advantage of a pretty cheap advertising market. And uh, I should have I should have left and parted ways with them earlier than I did. But I think I was so frightened of what I would do on my own that I delayed and delayed and delayed. And it definitely cost me money. Um, so at that point, you were obviously paying them a fee to manage the ads. And then did you just have a budget per month you had allowed them to spend on your behalf? What did that budget look like? So for them to manage my ads, oh, I'm trying to remember back what it was. I feel like it was $2,000 a month in 2020. Still bothers me. My ad budget, I think the minimum that they would allow you to spend was $2,000 a month. And so I didn't even have that money. Um, I had to put, reinvest that money and just kind of go, okay, this is either going to sink or swim. In the first week of running ads with them, Previously, I'd probably sold one to two sheets a week if I was lucky. I sold $8,000 worth of sheets. Um, and so I was like, oh my gosh, it was incredible. But what you have to remember is I had a warmed audience. So there were people already engaging with my social media and my website. When you invest in ads for the first time, if you target those very warm people, they're very cheap and easy to convert. And so you often get really great results initially. But that's not sustainable long-term if you don't have a good strategy to get all of those new fresh customers in. Um, and that's what happened with this agency. And I was, you know, handed off and there was no creative updates or anything like that. In hindsight, it was terrible. I've learned a lot since then and I'm a lot more, um, I'm a lot more confident in my skills and abilities, but uh, I had to learn the hard way. And so you finished up with that agency. Since then, have you been running ads yourself or has the strategy completely changed? Yeah. So the end of 2020, I parted ways with that particular agency. I onboarded with a new one who was women led, very small, was great for probably six to eight months. Same scenario again. They just kind of want to build their agency and results completely kind of tanked. And I think that was a combination factor of all of the COVID lockdowns ending. Um, that was at the beginning of last year that the results really started to dive and I was just not making a profit and it was costing a fortune. And I, middle of last year, I formally parted ways with them and I went it alone for the first time and I started running my own ads. Um, I kind of just figured it out for the first six months. Um, and now I'm a part of a sort of a business coaching community with other product-based, uh, e-commerce founders, and now I completely run all my own ads at a spend that I have never spent before, but at a profitability that I've never had before, because now I really understand the strategy behind it. Wow. That's yeah. great. So that yeah. community that you're now part of, is that a free community? Do you pay to kind of be, no, you pay to be in that mentor space? Yeah, absolutely. But it would be what I would be paying an agency to run my ads and I can be a part of that community. I can absorb all of that knowledge, all of the ongoing learnings. You get this, this kind of collective knowledge of what other people are doing as well. Um, so for me, it absolutely works. It's certainly not for everyone. Um, 
I think you have to, I think one of the things in business is you have to learn how to do absolutely everything on your own first and you might fail at it, but you'll understand how difficult it is, whether you, or how easy it is. Cause there's some things that are really easy that you can actually completely do yourself. That if you try to outsource and they will cost you a fortune, there are some things that are incredibly difficult that will take you a lot of time and energy and it's actually far more cost effective for you to actually outsource that process and it's going to be different and unique to everyone depending on your own skill set so I think you have to be a jack of all trades you don't have to be an expert at everything but doing that really helps you figure out where to channel whatever limited funds you might have and what the biggest priority in your business is in order to just continually keep building and scaling. When you said that you're now, so you're running your own ads and you're making a much higher profit than what you had before, are you investing more money towards the ads too, or is it less money than what you were doing, but the profit margin is obviously a lot higher? Um, it's fluctuated. So I, I really kind of, from sort of March this year is when I really took it on myself. I initially kind of scaled quite a lot of money in the ads. Sometimes they were profitable. Sometimes they weren't, um, and I think it's about finding your sweet spot about how much spend is appropriate per channel as well. It isn't just a matter of spend, spend, spend. The more you spend, the more money you'll make. Um, it depends on your audience size. It depends on the country you're targeting. It depends on the particular niche your product lies in, whether it's quite niche or whether it has really broad appeal, whether it's a repeat product or a single purchase product. Um, so... I, I've kind of found my sweet spot, which is a bit more than what I was spending with agencies, definitely. Um, but the profitability on those ads is better than what I've probably had previously. And understanding not to invest all of your money into one channel, I think is really important. There's lots of free things that you can do that will feed those paid efforts. If you just purely relied on paid efforts alone, you'll have very expensive marketing costs, um, and you'll find it really hard to scale profitably. What channels are you using now for paid ads and then what are you doing organically to support that? Yep. We do, I say we, me, because it's just me. <laughs> so uh, Facebook ads is obviously the primary paid channel. Uh, Google ads is quite important for me now, but it wasn't initially. So uh, Facebook ads is a... Um, you know, any kind of social media where you're kind of jumping up in front of people uh, is kind of outbound marketing, I think they call it. Uh, anything that's search-based is inbound marketing. So there's no point investing in search-based like Google-type advertising if people are not actually searching for your product or the problem that you solve. And so because when I created my product, there was no all-in-one waterproof sheet, I didn't invest in Google Ads because I thought, what's the point? No one's – and I found Google really confusing – um, however, now, uh, people are searching for waterproof sheets. So it's a really nice complimentary channel. So I spend a little bit of money on Google ads. I spend the majority of our budget on Facebook ads. We obviously do organic social media, not nearly enough of it. Uh, TikTok is incredible for organic reach. Uh, Instagram does not really have organic reach anymore. Instagram's kind of more about nurturing your existing audience. TikTok is about getting in front of new people. Um, are, you, sorry, are you creating different content for TikTok and Instagram or repurposing? Both. I don't, uh, I don't do organic social media particularly well. It is not my love at all. Um, I, I found organic social media in the early days really difficult. I'm not a picture perfect kind of person and creating that beautifully perfect content that Instagram acquired maybe two to three years ago was just not in my wheelhouse. And so I didn't really do it. It's a massive missed opportunity for me, but, um, I just found it hard. TikTok, I find really easy because it's very raw. It's very organic. It is all about talking to camera and it's all about just sound bites of solving problems. So for the most part, I'm now creating primarily for TikTok and I will repurpose content across to, um, Instagram if it's appropriate. I don't really create specifically for Instagram unless it's just kind of a story post, which is more about updates of what's going on in the business. Um, yeah, I don't do either of those channels particularly effectively or to their full potential. I disagree because I have watched some of your videos and I thought they were great. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So social media and Google ads aside, are you doing much with email? And if you are, what yes. digital solution are you Huge. Um, Pinterest, I forgot to mention as well. Pinterest is a really great, um, very, very, very top of funnel uh, channel from both organic and paid perspectives. Um, and like I'm talking a tiny, tiny amount of paid uh, budget towards that. And it has real longevity, like where content on organic social media is gone within a day, pretty much. Paid ads, you might get a couple of weeks out of it. Pinterest, you can literally get months, if not years, out of a good piece of content. Um, and it doesn't someone require... Who, sorry, for someone who said at the start of this conversation that you don't have a marketing background and you have a syndrome, I am blown away with your <laughs> ability to articulate each channel, its purpose, and yeah. your reason for being there. I just want to... I've learned a lot. Like, I, I knew nothing. I literally knew nothing in the beginning. And I'm not, as a personal, like, I'm not a huge personal user of social media. I don't post. I probably consume, but I don't post personally a whole lot. Um... But I, I don't know, you just, you figure these things out. And I, I definitely have a thirst for knowledge, which I think is like one of the key things that any entrepreneur needs to have. You just need to be curious and want to know more and more and more and more and figure out how to do things better. Um, so that's kind of what's fed what I know now. Um, not because I've done any particular course or any, and I've made mistakes. Like it's, it's about trying things and testing things and sometimes just making mistakes um, and learning from them is really important. So important. So small amount of uh, money towards Pinterest, massive longevity, email, you're also doing stuff yep. with? Yes. Email is so, so crucial. Um, I use Klaviyo as my email service provider. I know that there are other uh, options for me, I, I, don't, I think I use MailChimp for like two seconds. Uh, I don't think there's any better partner than Shopify and Klaviyo. They just, they go together. They're beautiful. And even if you don't use all of the, uh, I guess, features of Klaviyo in the early days, it is about data. Data is key to running a long-term successful business, um, particularly in this world of all of the privacy changes and social media platforms going up and down. You don't own your social media channel. Your ad account can be shut down at the drop of a hat. Your social media profiles can be hacked. They can be, um, they can be shut down by Meta without notice for no reason, sometimes for bogus reasons, sometimes for valid reasons. And you don't own that audience. That's Meta's audience. So email is the one thing that you own, you can control. And it is absolutely essential that you invest in collecting that information um, and retaining that information. I think Clavio is a really good platform to do that. And it allows you to engage with your customers in a, in a really targeted way so that you're not just blasting everyone like with emails constantly. We all switch off from those emails. Really good, effective email marketing is just talking to people about what they want to know when they want to know it. Um, and anything outside of that is just unnecessary noise, in my opinion. Before I forget to ask you, when did you sell the first 1,000 units? And then how did you decide to put in your next bulk? And did that look like a similar amount? Or at that point, had you decided, no, I want more or less? Where were you at? Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, don't do what I did. Um, so I ordered my first run of sheets in December, what did I say, 2018. They didn't arrive in May. They eventually came in July when we launched. Um, I did, didn't sell much of anything for about six months. And then when COVID hit, things naturally organically picked up a little bit. And then I jumped on board with the agency in sort of April. And it was at that point when I, that first week in, when I sold a bucket load of sheets, I was like, oh my God. It takes three months to produce my product and we're in the middle of a pandemic when things are completely slowed down. I have to order another run of sheets like now or I'm in trouble. Um, so I think maybe just before I'd onboarded with the agency, I'd ordered two new colors because I thought maybe that was one of the reasons why I wasn't selling as well. I didn't have enough variety. Um, and then I think July after I'd onboarded with the agency, I put in a massive order, like ridiculous 
So where I'd ordered a thousand sheets before this time, I ordered 5,000 and I ordered uh, five new colors and I did two new sizes um, because I had in my head that we were just going to scale enormously and I had to take a loan to do that. Uh, so I, I borrowed money from my parents um, under a personal like finance agreement. They were getting a very fantastic interest rate out of it. Um, and uh, yeah. It, again, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't have done it that way. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> if you do it again, how would you have done it? And also at this point, were you saying before that it really tanked with that agency? So were you then left with all of this stock thinking, yeah. oh no, mm, I'm yeah. back where I kind of begun? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, oh, look, I don't know if it was all the pregnancy hormones or what was going <laughs> Um, look, I genuinely believed in my product and I had incredible feedback and I, I knew that I, I had, there was a gap in the market. I knew that my product was incredibly good quality. Um, but I also knew that there were some limitations on people could only buy one of two colors or one of four colors. And then what about bassinets? And when I was hand making them, I was making these other sizes as well. Um, but I didn't have the money initially to be able to make bassinets and, you know, co-sleeper sizes as well. So I just invested in the cot sheets and I just thought if I could just get the stock here, if I could have the variety and the options, then I could, then I could scale. Um, there was no proper business plan behind this. It was just, I'm positive that I can do it. The margins are there. I know that I can do it. I'm now marketing effectively. It wasn't until after I placed the order that things sort of started slowly declining with that agency. And then I was a bit panicky and my order was supposed to arrive, but it got delayed by two and a half months, even though I was on pre-order. Um, so that aged me another 10 years, I think. Uh, oh, no. uh, yeah. So I hadn't done another pre-order since then until earlier this year when my stock was actually on a ship a week from landing in Australia. And then I did a pre-order. I was so badly traumatized by it. Um, in saying that I went on, I went on pre-sale for all these new sizes and colors in that October. Uh, I knew that I was going to be, I found I was going to be delayed a week or two. We were in the middle of maritime strikes. Um, and then our container got held for inspection over Christmas. So I just felt like I was emailing people constantly saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But it was the only thing that I could do was to communicate, communicate, communicate and say, if you need refunds, I'm more than happy to do that. I had no refunds at all, which still blows my mind to this day. So uh, yeah. they all said, no, I'm happy to wait. Yes. Yeah. What an amazing customer base. Yeah, I, I do. I genuinely have. I don't have any bad customer stories. I really don't. Um, and I think uh, there's two reasons for that. I think one is that the way that I market is honest. Um, I, I really believe in going above and beyond in helping people get the right size. And I don't want anyone to buy my product that doesn't want my product. I don't want them to buy it if it's not right for them. I don't want them to get it home and it not fit. And then then be stuck with it. If it doesn't fit and it doesn't work, send it back. Like hundred percent. Like, and I think just having that transparency and being like willing to help people and go above and beyond just means you seem to attract nice people. I don't know. Maybe I'm lucky. Do you pick and pack from your house? I do now. I never oh. used to. Um, yeah. So initially I went straight to a 3PL, so a third party logistics warehouse, because I was living in a rental at the time. I was heavily pregnant with Hamish and I knew that there was just no possible way I could, I had nowhere to store the stock anyway. Um, and I, in my head, I was like, no, we're making decisions at, at this level because this is where we want to be. And I don't want to be stuck packing orders all day. Um, and it was a really good move because during COVID, even though fulfillment was in Melbourne, they managed to fulfill right throughout all the lockdowns. So we never had any major delays from that perspective. Um, and it allowed me just to kind of focus on all the marketing stuff. I think if I had to pick and pack orders at that time as well, while doing the marketing, I just wouldn't have been able to do it. July last year, I brought fulfillment in-house. Um, storage costs were just getting really, really expensive and... Uh, 
in the wake of COVID with all the interest rate rises, business was hurting a little bit and I just needed to pull back costs wherever I could. We're in our own house now, so we have space to be able to set up a fulfillment um, space uh, in kind of our basement under the house. And I've got offsite storage for all the rest of our stock now. And it effectively cut my fulfillment costs by half. Um, so, uh, you know, initially it was really easy because it was only, you know, five to 10 orders a day. But now that things are a lot busier, it is definitely a struggle to get the orders packed and do all the other stuff. But I wouldn't have been able to get to this point if I didn't cut those costs back and be able to reinvest those costs elsewhere um, and not not have to pass on those increased costs to customers. I didn't want to have to raise my prices. I'd done that, I think, once or twice. And I really didn't want to have to raise my prices. I want to keep my sheets affordable. Um, I need to make money, but I, I don't want to make them out of reach of people and just price them at a premium for the sake of it. And so now that you have brought fulfillment in-house, but it is getting a bit too busy, are you considering hiring someone to help you or are you just like all hands on deck, like all the kids involved? What are you doing? No, it's the kids help. No, they don't help. Um, so my husband's a shift worker, so he will often help pack orders as well. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think I think the I'm, I'm still at a fork in the road of where we will go when we scale beyond this point as to whether or not we will set up our own warehouse space, which I think is probably the likely scenario. I'm, I'm in the process of starting to grow a team now. So hiring a social media manager, um, we'll move into a proper dedicated warehouse and probably have someone, uh, like casual staff working fulfillment sort of next year and beyond the, while the costs at that point are probably equal to having our stuff in fulfillment. The ability to control our stock and see what's going out, um, have access to our stock when we want to go to expos or trade shows. That was one of the huge drawbacks of me being in a 3PL um, because I live in Newcastle. There's no logistics centres in Newcastle at all yet. Please someone build one. Um, so it meant I've either got a store in Sydney, Brisbane or Melbourne and if I need to access my stock to go to a trade show, I literally have to pay them to pack up the stock as they would if they were filling an order and it just becomes really cost prohibitive. So having your stock on the ground in front of you just means you can visualise it. You can see what the orders look like when they're going out. You can pivot and add gifts. You can change packaging. It just allows you to be way more dynamic, I think. But it's certainly not for everyone. How amazing to have gone from, you know, those years ago with, with the first order of 1,000 units being completely wrong and having your first first panic to now being in a position where you're growing a team, thinking about having a warehouse space, bringing mm. all of that in house. It's, um, yeah, it's incredible. I've so enjoyed talking to you and I feel like I could talk to you all day. I still have so many questions, but we probably, oh should, <laughs> probably should start to um, wrap this up. So I've got two more questions. You have given us a lot of tips and advice and um, lots of wisdom, but what would be your one piece of advice for a mum at home with a product idea and, you know, nowhere to begin or no idea how to get started? The first thing I would say is don't do it. And then the second thing I would say is if you're going to ignore me, then you're probably the right person to start a business because um, it's not easy. Like, it's hard and it's so much harder than you think it's going to be. Um, you, you like you read these stories in the media about mum created a product on maternity leave and made a million dollars. That is such utter garbage. I guarantee you there was years of work. There was tears, there was blood, there was sweat, there was sleepless nights, there was stress that went into that. It wasn't an overnight success. And I get really angry about those kinds of articles because I think they diminish the amount of work that actually goes into creating any kind of startup. And I would argue that no one writes about men creating businesses like this. Um, so I would say, first of all, don't do it. But if you're not going to listen to me and you really do want to do it, then ask questions. Um, keep it simple. Don't... Don't compare yourself to other people. Um, be sure of your product. Make sure you have a really good product, but then make sure there's a need for the product because if there's a need for the product or there's other people already doing it better than what you can, you're probably just going to waste your money. Um, so have a great product. Make sure there's a need for it. 
Um, don't compare yourself to other people. Just one step at a time. Have an absolute thirst for knowledge. Um, and don't be told by anyone what you should or shouldn't do because e-commerce rapidly changes, like rapidly. I would argue it's probably one of the fastest changing um, business models with what works and what doesn't. And if you're taking advice from someone that started and scaled the business five years ago that's not actively in that business now, then they don't know what they're talking about. It's, it's a different landscape. So like my startup journey from five years ago is not one to follow now. Um, it's one to probably learn from. And I think it's helpful to learn from people that are, that are doing it now, but it can become really, really overwhelming. Um, figuring out what you need to do first and then just enjoy it. Cause at the end of the day, if you are not loving even the hard stuff, um, it's not going to be sustainable long-term and enjoy your babies. Like, <laughs> um, maternity leave side hustles that turn into a business are really great, but that I, that product idea will probably always be there. Um, to some degree, your babies are only little for such a small amount of time. So make sure that you don't miss out on that. I'll probably speak from a little bit of personal experience there. And then one last piece of advice. You said one, but I'd give you like 50. <laughs> um, be original. Please be original. Um, you can be inspired. You can innovate on someone else's product or idea, but please don't copy people. You, you won't, you won't succeed. If you have to carbon copy someone else's product, someone's idea, someone's design, someone's marketing strategy, you won't survive and you'll attract the wrong customer. Um, be you, just be very much authentically you. And they're the people that tend to kind of make it. And finally, are there any brands creating pregnancy, baby, or postpartum products founded by other Australian mums that you love and would recommend? So many. One product that I absolutely love um, is the Sucky Plate by Starting Solids Australia. Um, Jeanette is the founder of that business. She's a pediatric dietitian. Uh, she's incredible. She lives fairly locally to me and I met her at a baby fair, but this plate is phenomenal. Like if you've bought those sucky plates that, you know, like they literally come off in two seconds flat or your kids pry their fingers at this thing, you can lift a table while it's still stuck to it. Brilliant product. I need that. Yep. Um, and then the other one is uh, a product that I haven't used, but I just, we've met on Instagram and become Instagram business friends. And I really love her product. I'm just beyond the years of using it. It's called Wriggle Bum and it's a change pad. So it's like a little uh, kind of belt that straps around the change packet and you kind of pop it on like a little seat belt around your baby's belly and it stops them wriggling all over the place when you're trying to change their nappy. And I think it's a brilliant idea. Um, yeah, I love that name. Yeah, yeah, it's such a cool, cool name, and it's a cool product. And it's it's totally original; like it doesn't exist anywhere else. So, um, they're the two that I can think of, and they're both run by wonderful, wonderful women. And I just love innovative, original ideas. So, yeah. 